Uh, we have been talking through the book of Genesis now for the last weeks, and um, we are getting to the home stretch. This is the part I've been waiting for. This is the part that I have always been excited about preaching on. And uh, we're getting into the section now that deals with Joseph, who is known as the dreamer. And we all have dreams. And, and you may not remember that about yourself, but if you could for a second think back to 10-year-old you. For some of you, that's further back than for others. But think back. Think all the way back. You know what, though? Old people can remember when they were 10. It's what they had for breakfast that we have problems with, right? So remember back to when you were 10 or 8, something like that. Think about what you dreamed about then. What, what did you think you would want when you grew up? What did you want to do for a living? Where did you want to live? What did you want to do? How, were you going to be an astronaut? Were you going to change the world? Were you going to be president of the United States? The things that we dream when we're kids, what happens is often they sort of get drowned out as time goes on. What you were dreaming about when you were 20 years old is not what you were dreaming about when you were 10 years old, right? And as you get to be 30, 40, 50, what tends to happen is that we sort of, we sort of just drop our shoulders and forget that maybe once upon a time, God implanted some vision in our lives that was supposed to be great and was supposed to be awesome and was supposed to be exciting. It was supposed to be an adventure. It was supposed to be life-changing. And we settle in because we have a nine-to-five job and we have a mortgage to pay and we have all those kind of things. And we just kind of forget that uh, we once had a passion about life. And as we get to this new series that we're into um, starting today called Live in the Dream, I want to sort of give God an opportunity to reawaken a passion in our lives for the kind of adventure that he has invited us on. And I don't want us to just settle in because the truth of the matter is dreams do not always go according to plan, right? What you thought when you were 10, what you thought when you were 20, I know it hasn't worked out that way. And, and oftentimes when dreams don't go according to plan, we just give up on thinking that God has any kind of dream for our life at all. Now, we met this guy, Joseph, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, in chapter 37, we saw Joseph. He was this uh, beloved child of Jacob. His uh, mother is Rachel, who is Jacob's favorite wife, and he'd always wanted a child from her. And so by the time he was born, the 11th son, he, he was the favorite son. His father doted on him. He gave him this uh, famous uh, many-colored tunic that he wore wherever he went, and it was kind of how what made him stand out from his brothers. His brothers resented him, and God began to give Joseph some dreams about his life and that he was going to be a part of a change in the world. His brothers then um, uh, got even more jealous, and his life began to become difficult. So, where we're going to find him today, in chapter 39 of Genesis, if you haven't already turned there, that's where we're headed. In chapter 39 of Genesis, we're going to find that Joseph arrives in Egypt. He got thrown in a pit by his brothers. He got sold into slavery. He arrives in Egypt. And at the time that Joseph arrived in Egypt, he was about 17 years old. Okay? 
So at the age of 17, Joseph arrives in Egypt. Now, this is in Genesis 39, and on my, in my Bible, that's just a, two pages. Two pages from the time when we meet Joseph to the time that he is in Potiphar's house in Egypt, 17 years. And you turn another page, and he spends his entire time in Potiphar's house. Don't worry, we'll get to this. He spends his entire time in Potiphar's house, and then just skipping ahead a little bit, he spends two years in jail. He spends 11 years as a slave to Potiphar, two years in jail. So he was 17 when he got there, add 13 years to that, he's 30 years old by the time that he actually gets to start getting a glimpse of the fact that maybe some of the dreams that God gave me are actually going to come true. In, in your Bible, it's a couple of pages, but in his life, by the time God works out all that he is working out and does all that he is doing in Joseph's life to get him to the place where he is ready to use him in a world-changing way, it's a lifetime. And, and I think one of the challenges that we face uh, by going through Genesis is that we're covering thousands of years in just uh, 50 chapters of Scripture. And we see one story, then the next, then the next. And sometimes today's story is 10 or 20 years after yesterday's story. And the time is going by. And, and God is taking a lifetime to get Joseph ready for what he's going to do. Now, I'm talking ahead because I'm guessing that most of us are familiar with the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis. It, it may be you've never heard of him, you don't know anything about him. If so, hang on because it's going to be a wild ride. But most of us already have a clue what's going to happen in Joseph's life. And I just want you to understand that a lot of us have dreams that we want God to accomplish in our lives. But what we would really like is we would like God to just hit the fast forward button and get us there. And it just doesn't work that way. Joseph spends 11 years in slavery and two more years in prison before he's really ready for what God is trying to do with him. I was, I was made aware of this concept this week because um, I went on Facebook and my, on my wife's Facebook account, you know how uh, it will it'll pop up, if you have Facebook, it'll pop up a memory from five years ago or something like that and show you? Well, on her Facebook account, it popped up a memory from five years ago, and it was a picture of my youngest daughter, Kimberly, graduating from high school. Look at this. So the top one is the memory from five years ago. The other one is from two weeks ago when she got engaged. Now, she's going to be married in two months. So she went from graduating from high school to getting her education, to getting ministry experience, to getting married in a, in a case of five years. Now, the interesting thing, and I, I share these stories about Kimmy with her permission, but the interesting thing about Kimmy is that during those five years, it has been a whirlwind for her. She has had major, major life-threatening medical problems. She has had so many surgeries in the last five years that I have lost 
count. She has been given hope from doctors and then seen that hope crash down when her symptoms come back. And then she has another surgery and gets more hope and then gets her symptoms back. And she has been going through this process for five years. And I was thinking about it, this whole illness thing with her started right before her high school graduation. She was scheduled to be the, the student speaker at her graduation. And she was in the hospital the week of her graduation. And so it was this big thing. I remember we were praying that she would just be well enough to get out of the hospital long enough to attend her graduation and make her speech, which by God's grace she was able to do. But that was the beginning of her serious illness. And that illness has gone on for the last five years and it has been tough. That being said, if you had asked me five years ago when I was sitting next to her hospital bed if there was anything I would not do to take the suffering away from her, the answer would have been no, there's nothing I wouldn't do. There'd be nothing I wouldn't do. If I had to die, I would die. I want her to be okay. And it was out of my hands as a parent at that time, right? But now, fast forward five years later, the maturity that has happened in her life in five years is astonishing. I would have never dreamed five years ago that she would be the woman that she is today, today. And she's getting married, and I think she's ready. And I'm excited for that. My point is this. Wouldn't we love it if God just made us ready for the next chapter of our life and it was always easy? It's almost never easy. And it wasn't easy for Joseph either. So let's pick that up in Genesis chapter 39. Now, you've already got the point of my sermon, so you can go to sleep now if you need to. <laughs> Genesis chapter 39, we're going to begin in verse 1. Now, Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, bought him from, an Ish, from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. Potiphar is a high-ranking government official. Picture head of the CIA. That's who Potiphar is, right? He's the captain of Pharaoh's bodyguard. Uh, verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph, so he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Now his master saw that the Lord was with him. And how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in, the sight, in his sight and became his personal servant. And he made him overseer over his house. And all that he owned, he put in his charge. It came about that from the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he owned, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. Thus the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned in the house and in the field. So he left everything he owned in Joseph's charge, and with him there he did not concern himself with anything except the food which he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. We've just seen the key concept that is going to ring throughout the next, the rest of the book of Genesis. And here it is. The Lord was with Joseph. We're going to see this repeated again 
and again and again and again. In those verses that we just read, verse two, the Lord was with Joseph. Uh, He became successful. Verse three, his master saw that the Lord was with him, how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper. Down to verse five, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. And it goes on and on and on, reminding us the Lord was with Joseph, the Lord was with Joseph, the Lord was with Joseph, the Lord was with Joseph. Why do we have to be told over and over and over again that the Lord was with Joseph? It's, I think, because... When we are in the midst of trials, we tend to think the Lord is not with us. If the Lord had been with me, why would I be in this hospital? If the Lord was really with me, why would I be in this financial mess? If the Lord was really with me, why would I be sitting in a divorce court arguing over custody of my children? If the Lord was with me, why would I be in these kinds of messes? But I want to remind you again, this guy's been sold into slavery. He's been moved to a faraway land. He is working as a servant in a house in a foreign land, and the Lord is still with him. That dream that the Lord gave him about how he was gonna be a great leader, that's still true. God is still with him. And by the way, I like verse six ends, just in case you're wondering, that Joseph was a super good-looking guy. It says he was handsome in form and appearance, and we're going to find that that turns out to be a problem for him. Now, I can just speak on behalf of super good-looking guys and (laughs) just tell you that this is a difficult thing, you know? It's not easy to be exceptionally handsome. And and Joseph was about to find out that it was going to get him in a little bit of trouble. Look at verse 7. It says, and it came about after these events that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph and she said, lie with me. Now that's pretty subtle, isn't it? Now, I just want to remind you, by this time, he's in his late 20s. Exceptionally handsome guy. uh, And he's kind of a hero in the household. Potiphar, in order to be in the position that he's in, would have been significantly older than him, and presumably his wife would have also been significantly older than Joseph. And I mention that because a lot of people look at this and are like, well, this is not a big temptation anyway. She's some old lady and he's a young guy. How how tempted would he be? Let me just say this. Um, He is a red-blooded man in his mid-20s. What that means is, and and tests have been done on this, if you take the blood of a man in his mid-20s and test it, you will find it is 90% testosterone, 5% Red Bull, and the rest 5% other, right? So that, I mean, that's just the deal. That is the deal. And so, of course, he was tempted. Of course, his sex drive was at its peak. And he has this opportunity. Here's this woman throwing herself at him, saying, hey, I'm available, come on. And you've probably heard this story before. You probably know that Joseph ends up having to run away from this temptation. And we're going to get to that, but let's just skip ahead to the moral of the story. Here's the lesson. Flee temptation. I know, it's so simple, right? 
Simple is not the same as easy. Can I get an amen? amen? Flee temptation. The scripture could not be more clear about this issue. Listen, temptation is normal. It is common to every single one of us. We all live in a broken world. We all live in a world that is filled with um, the world system, which is designed for sin. And the prince of this world is known in scripture as the tempter. So temptation is common to all of us. We all have to deal with this question of how do I face temptation? Now granted, your temptation, your strongest temptations may not be the same as my strongest temptations, but we all experience strong temptations. And this is not just true when you're young, your, the temptations change as you age, but we, we face temptations at all ages. And so here's the thing. Proverbs teaches us that immorality is the sin of fools. Immorality is the sin of fools. Why? It's a fool who stays close to temptation. Eventually, we're going to give in because the problem is not with the temptation. Now, listen, you have to listen to this. If you don't get anything else, but you get this, this could change your life. The problem is not with the temptation. The problem is with my heart. And that's why I can't just snuggle up to temptation and survive. I can't just walk real close to the edge and look down and enjoy the view and not fall. You may not fall today. You may not fall tomorrow, but you will fall because the problem is not in the temptation. The problem is in the human heart. And let me just let the scripture speak to that. If you go to the back of your Bible, the back of the New Testament, find the book of James and let's see what James has to tell us about this. It's right after Hebrews. Hebrews, big book toward the very back of your Bible. Then turn to find James. Or if you have a table of contents, go to that. Or just scroll through your phone. But find James. James chapter 1. And we're going to pick it up in verse 12. By the way, I love the book of James. And the reason I love it is because he does not care if he steps on your toes. He wants to help you. And so he tells us the truth. James chapter 1, verse 12. Listen to what he says. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Here it is. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. I love how he ends with do not be deceived because he knows that we deceive ourselves. I can handle this. It's no big deal. It'll just be a little. It won't be a problem for me. I know other people have a problem with it, but I won't have a problem with it. We tell ourselves it's gonna be okay, and we flirt with temptation. And he says the problem is in your heart. So the devil made me do it is baloney. Guys, the devil has no power over you that you don't give him. The devil doesn't make you sin. And it's not the world system that makes you sin. The problem is in our hearts. So we cannot afford 
to mess around with temptation. We have to flee temptation. So it doesn't matter what the issue is. If the issue is lust, get out of there. Get out of there. I, I, I give this advice. It's so hard because, because once you're older and you've been younger and you try to give advice to people who are younger and they're like, oh, you don't get it. And you're like, no, no, you don't get that I get it. Right? So here's the thing. Like, I, I tell young Christian dating couples all the time, they're like, yeah, you know, we, we want to be sexually pure, but, you know, we just keep, we're really tempted. We keep going a little too far, a little too far. And I'm like, okay, really, tell me about a typical date. Well, I, you know, we go to a movie and we go to a dinner and we, we come home and then, you know, we, we sit on the couch for five hours in the dark and, and pray together. <laughs> No, you don't, <laughs> right? Guys, get out of there. Change your dating habits. Stop doing that, right? Don't put yourself in that position. If you have a problem with greed, I don't suggest that you pursue a, a career in the financial field. It's not good, right? You have a problem with gossip? Maybe you need to literally decide there are some people you're not going to hang out with because whenever you get together with them, you end up talking about everybody else. Guys, we have to flee temptation because if we don't, we will all become victims of our own hearts. And when sin has conceived, it brings forth death. Only a fool continues to flirt with temptation. When you're undergoing serious temptation, run. Let's watch how this unfolds in Joseph's life. Let's get back to Genesis 39. Genesis 39, pick it up uh, in verse 7. It came about after these events that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph, and she said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house, but he has put all that he owns in my charge. There is no one greater in this house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you, because you're his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God. Now, if you have a way to highlight or write in your Bible or whatever, I strongly suggest you circle, highlight, underline those last three words, sin against God. He says, you know, he's given me all this power and all this authority. How then can I sin? And you expect him to say against him, but that's not what he says. He says, how then can I sin against God? Too often we give in to temptation because we justify our sin and it becomes no big deal to us. It is not that big a deal if I do this. It's not that big a deal. Nobody gets hurt. It's a victimless crime. And so many Christians caught up in what we would call victimless crimes and the Bible calls it sin. Great example of this is pornography. I don't know which statistics to believe, but whatever the statistics are, like way too many people are caught up in pornography. And they go, well, it's just me and my computer. It's not a, it's a victimless crime. First of all, pornography has got more victims in it than probably just about any other sin you could commit. And secondly, even if it was, the problem is not necessarily the person you're hurting. The problem is that your sin is an affront to a holy God. 
If we could get our minds back on going, oh, it's God that I'm hurting here. It's not my jerk of a mother-in-law. It's God. It's not that idiot that cut me off on the freeway. It's God. It's not my stupid boss who won't give me vacation time. It is God. It is not this corporate name on the building that I'm taking a little extra from because I'm not giving 100% at work. It is God. And if we can remember that we're, that we're hurting God when we sin, sin hurts people but also hurts God. And I was thinking, how can I illustrate this? Because, I, guys, we need to get this. So I thought of a way to illustrate this. So I want to ask Garrett, come up here. I'm going to have you help me with this, okay? Um, and, and we have to remember. Everybody say hi, Garrett. Hi. Yeah. So remember, when we sin, it hurts. When we sin against another person, it hurts that person, okay? It, it does. And... I want to illustrate this for you so that you get it, but I don't want us to get lost in this. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take off my glasses. You're going to like this. <laughs> here's what I want to do. Um, I'm, going to, I'm going to have you just slap me across the face. Okay? Uh, <laughs> I can do that. Yeah, great. What a great kid. Um, <laughs> now, don't do it too hard. I don't want any spit to fly into Robbie, okay? Just, but just go ahead and slap me across the face. <laughs> you can sit down. <laughs> you go slap. You expect them to go like that. I... Here's the thing. That's gonna leave a mark, right? I don't know. I can't see my face. Right? Is it getting red? Yeah. See. That is what happens when we sin and it involves another person. Let's not minimize this by saying nobody gets hurt because people end up with scars because of our sin. Don't believe me? You should hear what goes on in my counseling office week in and week out while I listen to stories about the scars that people have because of other people's sin against them. It leaves a mark. Now that being said, that's not enough reason to stop doing it for us because we justify it all the time. He, he hurt me first. She, she's, she's trying to attack me. Uh, I, I never liked him in the first place. I don't mind so much if he gets a little welt right? We have to go back and say, why then is temptation something I should flee from? It's not just because it leaves a mark. That should be enough, but it isn't. We know this from experience. It has to be that we realize that when we take that swing, we're not just hitting the person that we're angry with. We're hitting the face of Jesus as he hangs on the cross. It is against him that we sin. I don't want to take the time to look this up, but you can write it down in your notes. This is, this is so common in Psalm 51, which is a great psalm because it, it tells us right at the beginning that David wrote this psalm right after his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. 
okay? And, and you probably know that story. He, he took sexual advantage of Bathsheba. She conceived. Uh, she was married to this guy, Uriah, so he had her husband killed. He covered the whole thing up. It, it, was, it was adultery. It was murder. It was awful in every way, right? Now, in, in uh, Psalm 51, here's what he says to God when he confesses. He says, against you, O God, and you only have I sinned. And every time I read that, I think, tell that to Uriah, right? To tell that to Bathsheba. Or how about all of the people of Israel who put their trust in him? to live with integrity? Or what about his existing wife at the time whose marriage uh, covenant he just broke, right? There's a ton of people that we could say he sinned against, but I love the fact that when he repents, he realizes that I can't make anything right with anybody until I have to make something right with God. I have to deal with God. Why? Because sin, by definition, is against God. There are some sins that involve other people that I don't recommend you ever tell them about. You, you, let's say you, you, uh, you've been lusting after your buddy's wife, but you haven't done anything about it. I think you and God need to talk about that, but you probably don't need to talk to your buddy's wife about it. You understand? I'm not saying that we have to, not all sin is against people. But all sin is against God. Why is it terrible to sin against a person? Because that is a person made in the image of who? God, God right? We have to get that straight. David realized that his sin was against God, uh, and so he confessed that. Joseph realized that this temptation was a temptation to sin against God, so he ran from it. He literally ran from it. Well, at, at first he tried to resist the temptation, and when that didn't work, he ran. Look at verse 10. <clears throat> My cheek hurts. Verse 10. As she spoke to Joseph, she spoke to Joseph day after day. He did not listen to her to lie beside her or be with her. So he, he tried to just hang in there and resist. He, and, and it says he wouldn't even try to be with her. He tried to stay on the other side of the house from her. He didn't want to be around her because he knew she was a temptation. Verse 11, now what happened one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the household was there inside, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and went outside. When she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and, fl and fled and had fled outside, she called to the men of her household and said to them, see, he has brought in a Hebrew to us to make sport of us. He came into me to lie with me, and I screamed. When he heard that I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled and went outside. So she left his garment beside her until his master came home. Then she spoke to him with these words, the Hebrew slave whom you brought to us came into me to make sport of me. And as I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled outside. Now, when his master heard the, wor heard the words of his wife, which she spoke to him saying, this is what your slave did to me, his anger burned. So Joseph's master took him and put him into jail to the place where the king's prisoners were confined and he was there in the jail. Okay, let's do a quick recap. 
God made a promise to Abraham. Remember back to that point? God made a promise to Abraham. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a great nation. And all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through you. That promise got passed down to who? Come on, it's a, it's a, this is a participation quiz. Abraham's promise got passed down to his son, Isaac, right? Isaac was the carrier of that promise. And that promise got passed down to? Jacob, and now Joseph is the son of Jacob, and God has revealed to Joseph that he is going to get to take part in this incredible blessing, right? And so this is, what, this is what, how he starts off. And then he makes the mistake of telling his dream to his brothers, who in their jealousy and anger and sinfulness and rage throw him in a pit, right? He spends several hours in this pit and nobody's going to rescue him until they finally pull him out of the pit and sell him into slavery. He is now with the uh, Ishmaelite caravan for several days, being taken every day further and further and further away from his family, his home, his safety, and his plans for his life. He ends up in Egypt where he is sold to this guy Potiphar and he starts at the bottom out there shoveling out the camel pens and he ends up being the head of Potiphar's household and God keeps blessing him. Why? Because God is with him and God being with him, he blesses everything that he does and then all of a sudden this woman <clears throat> comes and throws him under the bus and accuses him of something he did not do and he does not get any kind of a trial, he doesn't get any kind of a hearing. All it takes is for this accusation to be made and he finds himself back now in a dungeon. Like this is worse than where he started. That's been his story so far. It's probably been some 20 years or so since he had his dreams. Now put yourself in his shoes. What would these circumstances do to your faith? Remember, never judge God in light of your circumstances. Always judge your circumstances in light of who God is. Has God forgotten Joseph at this point? No, God can't forget. He's all-knowing, right? So when you go, oh, God must have forgotten. He has not forgotten. And by the way, he hasn't forgotten your sin either, right? To, to not remember your sin anymore does not mean to forget your sin. We have to remember who God is. It means that he doesn't hold your sin against you. That's a sermon for another day. God hasn't forgotten Joseph, right? Is God too weak to protect Joseph against Potiphar? No, God is all-powerful. So, so his problems are not coming from the fact that he doesn't have a God that is strong enough or that he doesn't have a God that uh, remembers him, right? Has God turned his back on Joseph? No. God is faithful even when we are unfaithful. He doesn't, he doesn't have the capacity to turn his back on us. Is God too weak to protect Joseph? No, he's all-powerful. Does God not love Joseph? No, God is love. So he never stops loving us, no matter how little we deserve that love. God is love. So if we put all of those things out in front and then view our circumstances through that filter, we will see our situation much differently than if we just look at the circumstances. Because all those things are true about God. But let me just tell you something. From where Joseph was sitting in that moment, all you can see is bars and chains and locks. And it's really tough 
when your circumstances are all you can see to remember that God is still God. Man, it would have been easy to get bitter. Man, it would have been easy to to lose heart and give up. It would have been so easy to make wrong assumptions about God and His plan, or maybe His plan's never going to come true in your life. Now again, spoiler alert, for those of you who may not have already read this story, I've read to the end of the story, Joseph does not end up in this prison. Joseph ends up in a palace. He is immensely blessed by God before the whole thing is over, and he becomes a tremendous blessing to others, and in fact, he becomes an absolute catalytic key in God bringing about his plan for the salvation of all mankind. But it doesn't happen in Joseph's timing, and it doesn't happen Joseph's way. It doesn't happen the way it's expected. God is always faithful, even when we don't understand. And some of us just need to be reminded of that today, because it gets tiring when you're carrying the weight of circumstances. It gets difficult to keep believing what's true about God when all you can see is bars and chains and locks. And some of us just need to be reminded today, your circumstances may be clouding your view of God, but God is still there. And God hasn't changed a bit. Look at verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. The chief jailer committed to Joseph's charge all the prisoners who were in the jail so that whatever was done there, he was responsible for it. The chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him and whatever he did, the Lord made to prosper. There's that theme again. The Lord was with him. And just as Potiphar saw that the Lord was with him and therefore put his trust in him and and. and, and you know, accepted being part of the blessings of God being with Joseph, so did the chief jailer. And now Joseph is rising up and he's becoming sort of a, a prisoner warden in the prison. And, and he leads the people. And imagine all the people that he had a chance to influence during that time. Why? Because the Lord was with him and whatever he did, the Lord made to prosper. Listen, Joseph is away from his family, but he is not away from the Lord. He has been unjustly put in prison, but the Lord is causing him to prosper anyway. My friends, God will not be overwhelmed by your circumstances or mine. He just won't. I don't claim to know what each of you is going through. I realize that in a, in a group like this, there's some people who are just really on the upswing and things are going great and you're just like, wow, life is good. And there are some people who are just sort of bipping along and it's just okay. And there's some of us that just feel like we've been tumbling down a steep hill for a while. I don't know what you're going through. You might be in a palace, so to speak, or you might be in a dungeon right now. I don't know. Some of us, are undoubtedly going through trials that are bigger than our ability to handle them. The next time you see someone post on social media, God will not allow you to have a trial that is too hard for you to handle. (laughs) Unfriend that person. (laughs) 
<laughs> That's just not true. Okay, you don't have to unfriend them. It's just not true. God allows us trials that are too hard for us to handle. Why? So that we'll let him handle them. So that we'll see his power in our lives. So that we will be an exhibition of God's greatness, not our own. And so some of us are facing trials right now that are harder than we can handle. Some of us are facing temptations that just won't seem to go away. And we've prayed and we've tried and we've talked to a friend and we've done all the things we know to do and that temptation just keeps coming back and some of us have been losing the battle against some of our temptations. Some of us right now are suffering because of the sins of others. Our, our cheeks are red where we've been slapped. And some of us are facing the consequences of our own sins. And some of you may be having trouble holding on to hope right now. If that's where you find yourself today, let me encourage you. Take your eyes off of your circumstances and turn your eyes upon Jesus. That old hymn is just as true today as it was when it was written. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Some of us have been staring at our problems so long trying to figure out how to fix them that we've forgotten to even look at God. He hasn't forgotten you though. He loves you. Remember, this is the same God who is with you it's the same God who was with David when he faced Goliath. Same God. The same God who's with you is the same God who was with Moses when he stood and saw nothing but a sea of water in front of him and a sea of soldiers behind him. Same God. The same God is with you who was with Elijah when the 400 prophets of Baal wanted to take his head off. Same God is with you who was with Daniel as he slept peaceably in a den full of lions. It's the same God who was with you who was with Elisha when the camp was surrounded and he looked out and he saw that the enemy was surrounded by the armies of God. The same God is with you who is with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when the pressure in his life was so great that he sweat great drops of blood and fell over again and again and again. Same God is with you. They all faced huge trials. They're all attacked by terrible temptations. But God was with them, and he was doing a great work in them so that he could do a great work through them. Joseph was in the pit for several hours. He was in slavery. He was in the dungeon. He went through all of this before he ever reached the point where his life looked anything like the dreams that he had as a young boy. It's a long time to struggle and I bet he hated the suffering. But I will bet you that if you could ask Joseph now, he wouldn't trade a moment of it because God was with him through it all. And God was using every moment of that struggle to, as a tool to mold Joseph into the shape that he created him to be in. God blessed Joseph's life, not just in spite of his struggles, but because of his struggles. Could it be that God is trying to do the same for you? 
Could it be that while you and I are running to God saying, please make this trial go away, please make this trial go away, please make this trial go away, that God is saying, I love you too much to let this trial go away. You need this trial. I have a plan for your life that is too big for you to skip this trial. You can't just fast forward it. Here's the key to the whole story. The Lord was with Joseph. Don't forget it all the way through this rest of the story of Joseph's life. And my friend, let me tell you, the Lord is willing to be with you too. So when it comes to temptations, be smart. Flee temptation. Get as far away as you possibly can. But when it comes to trials, stop squirming. Temptations are not from God, but often trials are. So stop squirming. Stop fighting. Stop trying to get out of your difficulty as fast as you can and instead start trying to get into the arms of God during your difficulty. It'll change everything. God was with Joseph and God is with you. The only question is, how willing are you to be with God? Isn't it time to stop staring at your problems and start staring at Jesus? Isn't it time to stop fighting against trials and start drawing near to God? He's not finished with you yet. Trust him and see what a mighty, mighty God we actually serve. Let's stand together and pray. God, we, we stand before you today as your children um, admitting we don't understand, admitting that there's stuff in our lives that we want to be different and you haven't changed it and we don't get it. We're tempted, God, to make assumptions about you not being good, not being faithful, not being loving. God, help us to see you and then view our trials through that filter, not the other way around. Father, we pray that somehow you would help us to deal with our own temptation that we would learn to flee because there's so much at stake. There are other people at stake. There is our future at stake. But most importantly, there is the glory of a holy God at stake. Help us to flee from temptation. But in the midst of our trials, God, help us to flee to you. Help us to run into your arms and not out of the trouble. And then use the trouble to help us become who you want us to become. It's not easy to ask that, God. It scares me to ask that. But I trust you, and I pray you would help us all to trust you a little more every day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 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 amen.